In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 71, which along with Psalm 70 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, June the 9th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are uh, moving from Deuteronomy, which was the book we had been in for a little while, and now we're moving into another book, and it's called Ecclesiasticus, or the Wisdom of Sirah. Um, it, that book was written sometime around 175 to 180 years before the birth of Jesus, and we, we know that date pretty clearly on this one. It's a, like I said, it's, it's a book in the Apocrypha. It's not in the Jewish uh, canon of Scripture. It, 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 in fact, has a prologue written by the author's um, grandson, and that prologue actually lists the book that are, books that are in the um, Old Testament, and that list dates from around 132 B.C. We're, we, we're very certain of these dates, and so, so there's a list of the canon, and this is not in it. It's, it's something else. It's, it's another literature. It's similar to Proverbs in some ways. It doesn't seem to have specific groupings of wisdom sayings. And then there are other things in here um, as well, and we're going to look at some of the other things in the book of Ecclesiasticus. The Roman Catholic Church, consider, and the Orthodox as well, by the way, consider this to be part of the canon of Scripture. And so for us Protestants and Jews, we, we look at it as something from which we can learn something, but we can't establish doctrine on it. And as I said before, whenever these are read in the Sunday reading cycle, um, if somebody gets up and reads this lesson in an, in an Anglican church, when they finish the lesson, normally if you're reading from Scripture, you're going to say, um, the word of the Lord. And the response from the congregation will be, thanks be to God. But when you read from Ecclesiasticus or any of the books of the Apocrypha that happen to be appointed for that day, the, the end of the reading is, all you say is, here ends the lesson. Because it's not considered to be the word of the Lord. So you can't say it the same way. And there's no response from the congregation. It's as though you read a, a passage from some random book. Um, I'm not quite sure why we bother with it. Um, when I was pastoring a church, I would just skip over this, and I would, I would bring it. I'd look at the lesson, see what it was trying to convey, and then I put something else in its place. Um, here, though, it's worthwhile to, to go ahead and mess with it a little bit, just to give you a little taste of what what these books are about. So this part right now, the 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 part of Ecclesiasticus we're going to look at, is sort of the um, the theme would be let us now praise famous men, because it's exactly how this part of the book begins: is let us now praise famous men, and then it's a recounting of sort of the the roll call of heroes from the Old Testament, similar to the same kind of thing you see in Hebrews 11, where he, uh, the writer there goes back and pulls in all these people from the past and, and said they're cheering you on as you run this race. And so here what we get is sort of a recounting of Israel history. And, and we're not starting at the beginning of this, by the way. It begins with Enoch is the first person to be praised in this. Um, there was a book written by James Agee back in, I guess, the 40s, actually, um, where he was asked to go and, and do a, a, an ode to famous men that's based on this Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. And what he did was he went out and, and found exactly the opposite of famous men. And he found common people, and, and particularly people struggling in poverty in Appalachia. And so here, though, what we get is the, it's the 
encouragement sort of thing that you get in that Hebrews 11 passage about those who have gone before who now should be your examples and you stand on the shoulders of these famous men and all they have done you now stand on their shoulders in whatever time and place you're in because these are the founders of the faith and so it begins our reading begins with Abraham and it and essentially just goes through sort of the life of Abraham he was the great father of a multitude of nations and no one has been found like him in glory so they're they're raising him up beyond everybody and saying that Abraham is the one who kept the law of the most high and entered into a covenant with him certified the covenant in his flesh in other words his circumcision and when he was tested he proved faithful Therefore, the Lord assured him with an oath that the nations will be blessed through his offspring. And it goes on through then to Isaac and to Jacob and then ultimately to Moses. From his descendants, Jacob's, the Lord found, brought forth a godly man who found favor in the sight of all and was beloved by God and people. Moses, whose memory is blessed. He made him equal in glory to the holy ones, the saints, the angels, and made him great to the terror of his enemies. And then he goes on to, to talk about the, the, the qualities of Moses. For his faithfulness and meekness, he consecrated him, choosing him out of all humankind. He allowed him to hear his voice and led him into the dark cloud and gave him the commandments face to face, the law of life and knowledge, so that he might teach Jacob the covenant and Israel his decrees. And so he's given these things in a way that, that he is now able to teach these things. And so there's something to teach, right? I mean, you read some of these things, don't covet, don't um, steal, don't murder, don't do, you know, worship false gods, don't, don't set up idols or make uh, images and all that kind of stuff. And, and they seem pretty simple, except for there, there's there's a, a depth to these that, that's not uh, easily seen. So what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? And that's the way that Jesus teaches on the Good Samaritan. And then in the um, Sermon on the Mount, he teaches about murder can include hating your brother and your heart. Um, adultery can be looking on a woman with lust in your heart. You know, the, it, the, the bar is being raised, and it's, things aren't as simple as they seem. And it's sort of like what happens in Genesis uh, with um, Eve's response to the serpent, including we're not supposed to eat of that tree. Um, in fact, we're not even supposed to touch it. And so it's building a fence around the law. And so that's what Moses is given this face-to-face with God because then he could understand God from a different perspective than if you had not been face-to-face with him. And so we're looking at this, um, the, the treasury or the, the hall of fame of the saints of Judaism, essentially, is the best way to say this. And so we just looked at three of these today. Um, but... But we need heroes in the faith. We need people to look up to. We need people to aspire to be like them. We need people to admire in the faith. Understanding they all fall short of the glory of God, just like we do. But ultimately, there are some who run the race well, and we need to pay attention to their examples, and we need them to spur us on. That's the point of this passage, this part of the book of Ecclesiasticus, but it's also, again, the same thing in... um, Hebrews 11, from a Christian perspective, we're still looking back to those Old Testament heroes in these, in these ways, and so that it's that pulls it in in a in a very different way in in Hebrews. And the point of Hebrews, remember, the point of the book of Hebrews is that 
Jesus is superior to anything else you would go back to. It's, it's written to a community that's primarily Jewish and is, has begun to doubt because the, of the delay of Jesus' coming. They've begun to doubt and they've begun to go back and hedge their bets and pick up some of the Jewish sacrificial system again. So it's probably written before AD 70, which was when the, um, the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. So, it, but, it, but it's pointing to those Old Testament heroes and saying, hey, they pointed to Jesus. All these people pointed to Jesus. And so it's important that we, that we do have heroes in the faith, people that we admire and look up to, knowing that ultimately they're human and they're not Jesus. <clears throat> and in the gospel... That you get this thing where where somebody's got people have to make decisions here. So remember, they've come from Jericho, they've come from Galilee through Jericho, and then they've come all the way into the city now on this pilgrim um, march from the outer parts of the of the Jewish nation into Jerusalem as they come for this pilgrim festival of, of the Passover, and so. But after he speaks to them about his death and all these other things, he, he gets close to Bethpage in Bethany near the Mount of Olives, which is out near where um, Lazarus and his family live. So he sends two of his disciples into Jerusalem and says, go into the village in front of you. So it's the next village, not Jerusalem itself. Go into the village in front of you where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one's ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. All right, so here they go. So the people go, they, the ones he send go into this village and find things exactly as he says, and, and their response is only the Lord has need of it. Well, apparently people knew, whoever owned that donkey, understood and knew exactly who this Lord is that's being referred to here. And so the, they allow them to take their donkey and give it to the Lord. And it, what an honor it would have been. What an honor it would have been for the people who owned it to say, oh, my donkey, the one that, that one there, that's that one right there. It hasn't been ridden by anybody other than Messiah. And so forever that donkey would have this distinction among the people, right? I mean, because this is where it's going to, where it's going to come in. And so you bask in the glory of of the, the Messiah choosing your animal in this way. And so they let him go and take this donkey, and so then they get back to the rest of the disciples. People throw their cloaks on the donkey, sort of like a, a saddle for Jesus to sit on, say. And then they begin to throw their cloaks on the road as well and to scream out and rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so this is they're coming in Jerusalem. They're proclaiming Jesus to be their king. They're they're um, strewing their cloaks along the road as a sign of homage that they're given to this king. And and then they begin to proclaim him in a loud voice. These are the people who have come with him on this journey to Jerusalem. And so as they come in, these these people are not Jerusalemites. They're the people from outside Jerusalem who are coming there for this pilgrim feast. And then some of the Pharisees begin to say to him, "Teacher, rebuke your disciples." Shut them up. They're going to quash this thing. They do not want this hubbub in Jerusalem. They don't want this, what looks like an overthrow of the Roman government. You know, you're going to despoil the the Roman peace that we enjoy here. We've got it kind of made, right? They let us do our own thing, and and they handle all the difficult jobs, and so we're 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 fat and happy. 
And so they tell him to rebuke his disciples, and Jesus' answer is, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It wouldn't do any good for me to do that. You're going to have to deal with it. And, and so the proclamation of Jesus as Messiah is complete. The, the truth is there, and now what's going to happen with that? How is this going to resolve itself, um, and who's going to help that resolution along? It could have been. What could have been is, is the Messianic reign could have been established this day. But who wouldn't allow it? It was the religious leaders, because he threatened their positions. They had not become believers of his. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They didn't, they didn't want to have to deal with this. And so they have to make a decision, right? And he's not going to make it easy for them. And so it's, it's a strange kind of thing to see that the people who are leading the revolt and saying we would not have him rule over us are those who are, who are supposed to be the religious leaders, but it's because he's going to usurp their place, and he's exposed them. He's exposed them again and again as hypocrites. And he uses them as the bad guys in all his stories. And so it, it, it waits for them to decide. He is completely submitted to them. God's in charge of everything in this scene, everything that happens after all this. God knew every single bit of it was going to happen, and he allowed it to happen. He allowed men to have their way. And, and it shows the depth of the fall, frankly, it, that in that sin is so deep that we can't even recognize God when he's walking among us. We don't want his righteousness. We prefer what we think is righteous. And so Paul then has to go on and speak with this sort of countercultural uh, voice that he's given to the people in Second Corinthians here. And, and remember yesterday, he has authenticated himself by his sufferings and the difficulties that he has suffered in attempting to, um, to bring the gospel to the world to do the missionary work that he's been given to do. He, he suffered greatly for it. He persevered through all that suffering. And, you know, it, it's, it's a remarkable thing to read Paul's litany that we had yesterday. And he says, I, I have to go on boasting, though. There's nothing to be gained from it. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And this is, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But if I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And so you remember that, that in Daniel, Daniel's told to seal up the book. There's, Daniel doesn't give all the prophetic revelation that he received. He's not allowed to give that. That has to wait for a different point in time. Paul here says he's taken up into the third heaven. We can get into the Jewish understanding of heaven at some other point, but but he's taken partially into heaven. The The way that, that he is speaking here, he's actually kind of referring to the book of Enoch, which tells us about the, the seven heavens. And so Paul says, I was taken to the third heaven, and I would show certain things. Maybe if you want, just send me a message, and we'll see about doing something on the book of Enoch just for fun. There's some, because it's quoted some in the, old, in the New Testament. 
And so it's, it's somewhat worth knowing things about, but know that it's not Scripture. And, and the proof that it's not Scripture is we don't have a single complete manuscript. There are huge gaps in it, and we honestly don't know how big those gaps are or how much we're missing from that book. And, and because we don't, like I said, they didn't treat it the same as Scripture. They didn't preserve this manuscript in the same way. But Paul says, I'm taken up into the third heaven, and I'm given these revelations, and I'm not allowed to tell what these revelations are. And, and that's the same kind of thing we see in John in, his, in, the, in the revelation itself. There are times when John's not allowed to say these things. He's only allowed to see these things. And so Paul says that, that to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, and we don't have any idea what he's talking about. Is he talking about literally a physical kind of thing? Because we, we know that he had weak eyes. So is that it? Or, or is it the, the, the thorn in the flesh? Is it the, the Judaizers who follow him everywhere he goes? And who are the primary uh, persecutors, the ones who, who did all those things to him, would be those who, who, have, who would say, nope, in order to become truly Christian, you've got to become truly Jewish, and you've got to accept circumcision and all these things. And, and so is that what he's talking about? Because it, it makes life difficult, you know. I, I can't let it be too easy or too good for you, Paul, because then you'll think about it as being you. But no, what I'm going to do, Paul says, what God did to him was to say, I'm going to give you this thorn in the flesh because it's going to keep you humble. And it's going to keep you focused on the task. It, it can't be too easy for you because otherwise you'd take credit for it yourself. And so, no, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. When he prayed to ask for this to be taken away, my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul accepts that completely. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You know, I don't know anybody who thinks that way. That's the honest truth. We all don't do well in weakness. We prefer strength. But, but God says that in, in our weakness, we will find our greatest strength, and our strength will be in Him. And so it always comes back to however much we praise famous men, it always comes back to how we praise famous men and saw God work through them in their weakness.